0: We are continuing our sermon series on the doctrine of the church, and this morning we are considering the subject of authority. Uh, Normally, we preach through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we look forward to beginning working our way through the Gospel of Luke on November 5th. The Gospel of Luke is the longest book of the New Testament, and we anticipate that going through the whole book's gonna take over a year. So Lord willing, we will begin that in a few weeks, and we are hoping and praying that our time in Luke would help us to grow in our knowledge and our understanding of Jesus, of who he is, why he came, and what it means to follow him in this world. So we are looking forward to that and encourage you to pray that the Lord would use our time in Luke to grow us and strengthen us in the faith as followers Of Jesus. But for a few weeks, we are doing a topical sermon series on the doctrine of the church. And I want to encourage you in this regard because the doctrine of the church is important for those of us who are Christians. The doctrine of the church teaches us what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. If we follow Jesus, if we confess Christ, what does it mean to follow Him in this life? Well, understanding his design and his plan and his purpose for the church is critical for our discipleship, for understanding what it means to follow him in this life. And so what we've seen so far is that the church exists universally and locally What that means is everyone who is born again, who comes to repent and believe in Christ, is added to the universal church, and the universal church refers to every Christian from every generation, from every part of the world. Christ adds his people to his universal church uh, through the new birth, through repentance and faith in Christ, and the universal church, which is made up of every believer from every generation all over the world, shows up or is made visible on the earth in local churches. The word that is translated church, the Greek word, is ekklesia, and that word means assembly, as in those with whom you assemble. And in one sense, every Christian is a part of the heavenly assembly. We don't experience it that uh, right now, but somehow, some way, because we are united to Christ, we are already seated with Him in the heavenly places. We will experience the reality of that in the age to come, where we will all be together with Him, assembled with him, the new heaven and the new Earth. But now we, who have been added to the universal church, join ourselves to local churches, to local assemblies. What we see is that local churches are not undefined, amorphous, loosely associated groups of Christians. Rather, local churches are defined groups of baptized believers who meet regularly in the name of Jesus, agree on the gospel, are committed and accountable to one another, submit to specific leaders who are accountable to keep watch for them, and whose relationships are marked by love, unity, and devotion. Membership is the term we use to describe the relationship between an individual Christian and a local church. The definition that we've used for membership is membership is a relational commitment between a Christian and a local church marked by the church's affirmation of their faith and oversight of their discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. And as I said, a right understanding of the church And membership is a matter of discipleship. Helps us to understand how we follow Jesus in this life. And to put these things into practice in a healthy, Christ-honoring way, we need to have a biblical understanding of the authority or of authority in the church. Now, I know that the subject or the topic of authority is not a popular one, It's not an exciting one. It's not one that's going to make probably uh, elicit a lot of joy. And in our culture, there tends to be resistance to institutions and a negative view of authority. And of course, some of that is understandable. Some of that is understandable because of the way that authority has been abused and misused. We've seen examples of this in the home, abuses of authority in the home. Abuses of authority in the workplace, abuses of authority by governing authorities, and even abuses of authority in the church. And these examples are painful, and they cause a lot of pain and hurt, and this should grieve all of us. We should lament the examples and the instances where authority is misused and Abused. But we also need to see that resistance and opposition to authority in principle is not good. What we see oftentimes taking place in our culture is attacks of authority, resistance to authority in almost every form. And when we attack or resist every form of authority, what are we left with? The authority of me. The individual self becomes the highest form of authority. And this manifests itself with attitudes such as, no one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me who to be. We see this in our culture today. If you're a Christian, you know that God is our ultimate and final authority. And God has established institutions on earth and gives authority to human beings. And we need to remember that authority comes from God and good uses of authority lead to flourishing. This is what we hope for and pray for and work towards. So how do we think biblically regarding authority in the church? Well, I think there are at least three things that we need to see in Scripture. One, Jesus has all authority. Two, local churches are given authority. And three, elders are given authority. So first, we see that Jesus is the head of the church, After his death and resurrection, Jesus appeared to his disciples. And in Matthew 28 18, he said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Those are the words of kingship. In Revelation 1 5, he is described as the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus has supreme authority. He is the sovereign king over everyone and everything. He rules over all. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we read this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In this passage, Paul praises Christ using powerful and moving language, extolling him as Lord of creation and Lord of redemption. And the one who is Lord of creation and redemption is the head of the church, he is our leader. He is our authority. He is our chief shepherd. The church belongs to Christ. What does it mean for us? It means that Christ has authority over us, and we are to submit ourselves wholly to him willingly and joyfully. Paul explained this in an analogy who compared the relationship between the Christ and the church to a marriage relationship. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 24, we read, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit everything to their husbands. So Christ, who possesses, All authority is head of the church and we who are the church are called to submit to him. And how do we do this? By humbly and joyfully obeying his word. In John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. When Jesus gave the disciples the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 to 20, he instructed them to go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. A disciple of Christ is one who's been baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and is seeking to obey, observe all That Christ has commanded. We don't treat his commands as good ideas. We don't treat his commands as suggestions. We don't treat his commands as optional. We know that his commands are good and they are good for us. And therefore, we joyfully, willingly obey all that he is has commanded. It's not to say that we don't sin. Of course, we can continue to sin and fall short. But the life of a disciple is oriented toward Christ and obeying his commands. Jesus, who is the head of the church, rules his church by his word through the Holy Spirit. And we submit to Jesus by obeying his word according to the power of the Spirit at work in us. And we do so recognizing that all scripture is God's word. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for a proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So we have a high regard for God's word recognizing that it comes from him. And therefore, we are compelled and commanded to obey and submit to his word. So Jesus has all authority, and we joyfully submit to him. And we also look to him to see his example of how he used his authority When Jesus came to earth, he used his authority in a number of ways. When he taught, people noticed and observed that he taught as one who had authority. Jesus taught with authority, making known the kingdom of God, proclaiming the gospel. He also demonstrated his authority over creation When he calmed a storm, he demonstrated his authority over sickness, healing diseases. He demonstrated his authority over death, raising the dead. He demonstrated his authority in all these ways. And what was he doing? Revealing the kingdom of God. That his people might enter. That God will be glorified we're given a wonderful, beautiful picture of how Jesus used his authority in John chapter 13. When Jesus was with his disciples, he did something that was surprising and completely unexpected. While he was gathered with them in a home, he took on the role of a servant, likely the lowest ranking servant, by getting down and washing and cleaning their dirty feet. They were stunned. Why would Jesus, whom they recognized as an authority figure, get down on his hands and knees, do this dirty job that was reserved for the lowest of servants? Jesus said to them, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus humbled himself for the good of his disciples, washing their feet. And of course, what he did there pointed to what he would do at the cross. He humbled himself in an immeasurably greater way when he subjected himself to humility, to torture, ridicule, to a brutal death, to the wrath of God being poured out on him at the cross. Why? Not just so he could wash our feet, but so that he could wash us and cleanse us of all our sin. Wow, this is our Savior. He used his authority to serve us, to redeem us, to forgive us of all of our sins, to reconcile us to God the Father, ultimately for the glory of God. This is the heart of the gospel. Friend, if you're not a Christian, our prayer for you is that you will hear and believe the gospel. What do I mean by that? When Jesus began his public ministry. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You need to understand the gospel. What did Jesus mean when he said the gospel? This is a really important question. When Jesus spoke of the gospel, he was speaking about The good news, the announcement, the proclamation of good news. And what is that good news? That God saves sinners like you and me in Jesus Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. We are all in need of a savior. We have all sinned against God who is our creator. He is the creator of everyone and everything. But we've all rejected and rebelled against his authority. We've all sinned against him. When we sin, we are rejecting God. We are rebelling against him. We are turning and going our own way. And because we're all guilty of this, we all deserve punishment and condemnation. But God, who is rich in mercy, provided a way to save his people. Jesus Christ came into the world as the savior of the world. And he lived a life without sin. He perfectly obeyed God's law honoring God and glorifying God in all things. And yet he went to the cross to die as a criminal, as though he were guilty. He did so to die as a substitute in our place to take the punishment we deserve. The wrath of God was poured out on Christ for the sins of his people. Jesus died as a substitute, and then he was buried. On the third day, he rose from the grave, conquering death, God demonstrating that he accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf. And Jesus appeared to hundreds of people, proving he is alive. After 40 days, he ascended into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Friends, he will come again. When he comes again, it will be for the final judgment. Our only hope at the final judgment is, is Jesus Christ your only hope is to repent and to believe in Christ if you're not a Christian repent and believe in Christ be saved he is a mighty savior he is a good savior he used his authority for our good for God's glory So in sum, Jesus used his authority for the good of his people and ultimately for the glory of God. Our understanding of authority in the church begins with Jesus, who is the head of the church and rules his church through his word by the Spirit. Next, we see that local churches are given authority. In Matthew chapter 16 verses 13 to 19, we read about a significant conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And here's what we read. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In this passage, Jesus asked his disciples an important question. Who do people say that I am? What have you heard? What are people saying about me? And they gave some answers. Well, some people say John the Baptist and... Some one of the other prophets, they gave some interesting answers. Clearly, there were a lot of rumors spreading about Jesus. A lot of ideas about him were going around. But then he asked them a more pointed question. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus affirmed Peter and said he was able to rightly confess Jesus as the Christ and the Son of the living God because God the Father revealed it to him. God the Father revealed it to Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus made a pronouncement about Peter. Again, he said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And he used some language in here that we're not all that familiar with. That's a little bit unusual or peculiar to us. Maybe it sounds a little bit archaic. Now if you're familiar with some of the debate about this passage, you might be aware that there's a lot of disagreement in particular between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Roman Catholics will take this passage, along with a couple others, to establish the office of the Pope. They'll take this passage here, and they'll say, Peter was the first Pope and began a succession of Popes. Protestants, of course, have reacted to that and have rejected the office of the Pope, but perhaps at times have gone a little too far in how they interpret this passage in resisting or rejecting the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. So for example, Bible scholar D.A. Carson writes, if it were not for Protestant reactions against extremes of Roman Catholic interpretation, it is doubtful whether many would have taken rock to be anything or anyone other than Peter. Roman Catholics say, Peter's the rock, he's the pope, begins the succession of popes. Protestants say, no, that's not what it means, but really try to make any distance between Peter being the rock upon which Jesus builds the church. Craig Keener writes, Peter is the rock because he is the one who confessed Jesus as the Christ in this context. Similarly, Edmund Clowney says, the confession cannot be separated from Peter, neither can Peter be separated from his confession. So trying to understand what did Jesus mean when he said, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build the church. Understanding that statement in the context, it's important to understand that statement in the context of Peter's confession, his right confession of Christ. John from Lehman summarizes this by saying Jesus means to build his church, not on persons or on truths, but on persons confessing the right truths on confessors, persons who confessing the right truths, what? What authority then did Jesus give to Peter? He gave Peter, possibly as a representative of all the apostles, authority, which is described as the keys of the kingdom of heaven, to bind and loose. Jonathan Lehman writes, the keys are the authority to judge and declare on a what as well as a who on behalf of heaven, They deputize their holder to pronounce a judgment concerning the who and what of the gospel. What is the right confession and practice of the gospel? And who is the right confessor? To bind or loose is to render a judgment or verdict in heaven's name. The keys do not give their holder the power to shape the gospel or to make someone a kingdom citizen, just like a judge neither makes the law nor makes a defendant innocent or guilty. After all, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, is divinely given and fixed, and a person becomes a kingdom citizen by the work of God and by faith. Rather, the keys give the authority, one, to assess whether some confession, doctrine, or practice is consistent with that gospel, as when the Council of Jerusalem needed to determine whether uh, necessary for Gentiles, uh, I'm sorry, whether to determine whether circumcision was necessary for Gentiles, and they give authority, two, to assess uh, whether or not certain persons belong to the gospel as a church does any time it baptizes someone into membership. So from Matthew 16, we see that Peter and presumably all the apostles are given this authority. But two chapters later, we see this binding and loosing language appear again in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. And here's what we read there. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So in this passage, Jesus addresses how we deal with sin in the church. If someone sins, you go to them, call them to repentance. If obviously in sin and not repenting, then you involve other witnesses who can confirm this verifiable sin that this person is not repenting of. And you call them to repent of this sin. If that person still does not listen, when multiple people are attesting to this obvious and verifiable sin, then you go to the whole church, the assembly. And this is not a reference to the universal church. This is reference to a local assembly. And we know this because of what Jesus says at the end of the passage, where two or three are gathered, where specific people are gathered or assembled in the name of Jesus. And it's the assembly, the local church, that makes that final call to repentance for this person who's living in a way that's contrary to their profession or confession of Christ. If they're living in an unrepentant way, contradicting their profession of faith in Christ, the whole local church is meant to call them to repentance. And if that person still does not repent, then the congregation is to treat them as though they're not a Christian, removing that affirmation of their faith. And then what does Jesus say? Immediately following this judgment rendered by the church, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He used that same language from chapter 16 to describe the church's decision to remove the unrepentant brother from the fellowship of the church. But this time, it's not the apostles to whom he seems to be giving this authority. It's the local assembly. Because where he said, where two of you or three uh, 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 agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done by my Father in heaven. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. His authoritative presence is with... Local churches. Brothers and sisters, just think about that for a moment. Jesus is saying his authoritative presence is with local churches. Jesus gives local assemblies or local churches the authority to render these judgments. In 1 Corinthians 5, we see the Apostle Paul exhort a local church to exercise this authority that Jesus gives to local churches for a specific situation they were dealing with in their local church. They were dealing with a man who was committing egregious sin, egregious immorality, clearly contradicting a profession of faith in Christ, walking in a way that was completely, blatantly, brazenly, contrary for a Christian. And so Paul instructed them how they were to deal with this, how they were to address this. Listen to the language he uses. In 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 5, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. I'm sorry. It's actually kind of that's not taught even among pagans, for man has flesh wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Tells the congregation, the church, to take this action. Remove this person from among you. For though I'm absent in the body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of the Lord Jesus, they're assembled in his name, with his power, with his authority. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. What we see in this passage is the Apostle Paul commanding a local church to apply the teaching of Jesus to a specific situation. A man in obvious and unrepentant sin. And they are to render this judgment. Why? So that ultimately he'll be brought to repentance. It's for his good. You have to love him enough to do the hard thing. You cannot allow a person to go on being self-deceived. The church was commanded to exercise this authority that's given to them by Jesus for the good of this man. Remove him from among you so that he will repent. And in verses 12 through 13, we read, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. Paul's telling them, you actually have a responsibility to render these judgments as a church. Not be judgmental, not be condescending, not be arrogant, not be prideful. That's not what he's saying. But you do have a responsibility to render these right judgments. And you have the authority to do this because Jesus has given you this authority. And his authoritative presence is with local churches. The church is authorized to render a judgment. As we saw last week, Second Corinthians chapter two, verses five through 11 provides an example of the other side of this process. In these verses, Paul described the restoration of a repentant man who had experienced church discipline. In verses five to seven, he said, "Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment, by the majority, is enough." So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul described a member of their church who had been punished by the majority, demonstrating they had a defined group of people in their congregation, of whom the majority disciplined this man. In this case, the man repented of his sin, and therefore the congregation was to welcome him back, forgiving him and comforting him, thus giving him reassurance. It's a beautiful picture of how the Lord uses the church when it rightly uses the authority given by Jesus to love someone enough to do the hard thing to call them to repentance and then to restore that person when they do repent. This is good, and it's good for us. And every believer is meant to participate in a local church in this way and be accountable to a local church in this way. In these passages, we see the whole congregation involved in affirming and removing. We see that local churches that agree on the true gospel and what is a right confession gather in the name of of Jesus, have the authority to render judgments affirming and removing members of the church. Jonathan Lehman writes, church authority creates the local church. Protestant churches are formed in two steps. Step one, someone preaches the gospel so that people hear, repent, and are saved. Step two, those Christians then organize by coming together and declaring themselves a church through baptism and the Lord's Supper. They gather and agree with one another. Two ingredients that Jesus says are essential to making a church a church. For several centuries, many Christians have called this agreement a church covenant. He also writes, someone has to say, yes, this is one of the members, and that right there is the doctrine we believe in. Different denominations recognize different people as possessing the authority to do that. Some say the pastors are elders, some the presbytery, and some, like me, the whole congregation. But the point is, every denomination agrees that somebody has to exercise this declarative authority. Somebody holds the keys, even if we disagree on who. So you see, the authority that Jesus gives to local churches is necessary for a local church to be a local church. What's different between a local church and a group of Christians who gather at a coffee shop for fellowship and encouragement, gathering together with other believers at a coffee shop for fellowship and encouragement? Study the Bible is a good thing. That is a good thing. But what differentiates that from a local church? A local church is a group of believers who gather in the name of Jesus, agreeing on the gospel, what is a right confession, and exercise the authority that Jesus has given to local churches, including affirming those who are members, and in those sad and hopefully rare cases, removing someone when necessary. Bobby Jameson writes, a church comes into existence through the mutual covenant-like commitment of its members to exercise the keys of the kingdom. If you are a Christian, this should matter to you. We need to understand what a church is because we who are followers of Jesus are the church. We need to understand the authority that Jesus gives to local churches and what actually constitute a local church. Why? Because we want to be faithful in the work that Christ has given the church to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And as the Holy Spirit uses us to proclaim the gospel and to make make disciples, we want the Lord to use us to see the gospel spread here in our community and beyond. We want to be a part of starting new churches, If we want the Lord to use us to this end, we have to know what a church is. We have to know what constitutes a church. We want the Lord to use us to send missionaries around the world to proclaim the the gospel and to establish churches where there are no churches. Well, if we want the Lord to use us to that end, we have to be clear on what a church is. We need to understand the authority of a local church and how that relates to the very nature of a local church so that we can faithfully follow Jesus, so that we can faithfully engage in the work of the Great Commission, so that the Lord can use us to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. So finally, we see that within local churches, elders are given authority. One of the things we see throughout the New Testament is that local churches are led by a plurality of elders, meaning multiple elders. We also see in the New Testament that the words... Elder, pastor, shepherd, and overseer are used interchangeably. They're not describing three different leadership roles or three different offices. They're used interchangeably. An elder is a pastor, shepherd is an overseer. They're speaking of the same leadership role, the same office. And what we see all throughout the New Testament is that local churches are led by a number, multiple, a plurality of elders. For example, in Acts chapter 14, verse 23, we read, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Notice the plural, elders, in every local church, singular. In Acts chapter 20, as Paul was traveling, he was in a port town and he called for the elders from the church in Ephesus, and then he addressed the elders from Ephesus. And in Acts 20, 28, he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Wow, there's so much there right there. He calls the elders of the local church. He tells them to, that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers, meaning their authority does come from God and that they are to oversee, to care for the church, reminding them who the church belongs to. It doesn't belong to you, elders. He obtained it with his own blood. So elders are to shepherd with the fear of the Lord, recognizing and understanding to whom the church belongs. But what we see is these elders are called to, are given authority by God, the Holy Spirit, called to oversee, called to care, under the leadership of Christ. We don't just see this in the book of Acts. Uh, we see this elsewhere. Uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, the apostle Peter exhorted elders. He said, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, As God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So Peter exhorted the elders to do the work of shepherding, to do the work of pastoring, and to exercise oversight over the congregation, to do so willingly, humbly, eagerly, not domineering, but setting an example, remembering who the chief shepherd is. Elders are to shepherd under the chief shepherd, who is Jesus And therefore, the eldering, the pastoring, the overseeing of the elders is meant to reflect the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. We also see in the New Testament that there are qualifications given for elders. They must have good uh, character. They must be of good character and be able to teach God's word. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul wrote, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So here their work is described as ruling, and it's connected with preaching and teaching. When you take all these passages and many others into into account, we see that God gives elders authority to rule, to oversee, to shepherd, to teach, and to lead local churches. So we see in Scripture that Jesus is the head of the church. He has all authority. He gives authority to local churches. And within local churches, he gives elders authority to rule, oversee, shepherd, teach, and lead. So, how do we hold all these things together? Well, first of all, we have a high view of God's word because Jesus rules his church by his word through the Holy Spirit. And so, when we gather together, we Read God's word. We sing God's word. We pray God's word. We preach God's word. We enact God's word. God's word is central. The reason that God's word is central in all that we do is because Jesus is the head of the church. And he rules his church by his word, through his spirit. And so we demonstrate our confidence in that and our conviction that that is true by having a high regard of God's word and seeking to submit to his word in all things. Then on top of that, we are what people would refer to as an elder-led congregational church. Well, what does that mean? That means that we have a plurality of elders, six specifically right now, who provide leadership and oversight, shepherding and teaching and leading. And there are certain decisions that are made by the whole congregation, by all of the members. There are certain decisions that we believe Jesus has authorized churches to make. And the best practice is for the church to be involved in the final say on those decisions. So we are not an elder-led congregational church because we've looked at all the governments of the world and we thought, oh, democracy seems to work well. Let's apply that to the church. That's not why we're doing that. We're an elder-led congregational church because we believe that Jesus has authorized churches to make certain decisions under the leadership of the elders. We're seeking to apply the biblical teaching to our doctrine and practices as a local church. We're trying to rightly exercise the authority that Jesus has given We are an elder-led congregational church because Jesus gives authority to local churches led by a plurality of elders, and he authorizes the whole congregation to make certain decisions or judgments. What we believe is that the whole church acts together under the leadership of the elders to bind and loose, to affirm and remove. When it comes to membership, the elders cannot make someone a member apart from the affirmation of the congregation. Similarly, the elders cannot remove someone from membership apart from the decision, the judgment of the congregation. So what does that look like? The elders take leadership and provide oversight and shepherding when someone wants to become a member of the church. We encourage that. We meet with people. We have them go through our membership class so we can teach and instruct and help them understand the commitment they are making. We meet with them to hear their testimony, how they came to faith in Christ, how they would explain the gospel and make sure they have a right confession. We have them read our statement of faith to affirm that they believe what we believe and agree on as a church. We have them fill out this application. We go through all this process to get to the point where the church can make a decision together. We provide that leadership, and then we provide that recommendation to the congregation. If we've been diligent, if we've done well in our role, then typically that goes smoothly when it comes to the congregation. Then we present someone to the congregation, recommending them for membership giving the congregation an opportunity to say, wait a minute, if, there's, if that's necessary. But in the end, the congregation has the final say. The congregation must affirm, yes, this is a member. Similarly, if it ever comes to a point where we have to remove someone, there goes through a process, oftentimes led by the elder, but not necessarily. But if it gets to a point, we can't remove someone. It has to be the decision of the whole congregation, the members of the church have to make that decision together usually under the leadership of the elders. So in order to do this, we have to agree on the gospel, which is why our statement of faith is an important tool that serves to help us agree on the gospel. The statement of faith was adopted by the church early on, and now everyone who becomes a member must affirm, I agree on this, I agree to this. Agreeing on the gospel is essential to who we are as a local church, having a right confession of Christ. We also see this puts into practice this agreement on the gospel and the authority that's given to local churches is why we also vote on elders. The congregation has the final say on who serves as an elder because the elders must rightly preach the gospel. If an elder is not rightly preaching the gospel, then the church should be able to remove that elder from leadership to preserve the gospel, to ensure that we agree on the gospel. And so again, elders take leadership in that, presenting someone to the church to serve as an elder. The congregation has the opportunity to hear that person preach and teach to ensure that they are teaching in a way that's consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church has the final say. If we were able to ever, uh, going to adopt a different statement of faith, that would have to be a decision of the whole congregation, because we all have to agree on the gospel, what is fundamentally a right confession of who Christ is. So all these practices serve to uphold a biblical understanding of the church and a biblical understanding of membership in the local church and a healthy Elder-led congregational church, the elders do their work well in submission to Christ, who is the chief shepherd, diligently seeking to lead and to teach and to rule and to oversee. And when they do that faithfully, the congregation is able to follow their recommendations, follow their leaders. Why does all this matter? Well, I hope you will see that among other things, it is a matter of of discipleship. When we rightly understand the church's authority and how that relates to membership, we recognize that we all have a job to do and a responsibility to one another. Being a member means you have a job. I'm sorry if you're just finding that out now. When we rightly understand this, we see that this relates to how we follow Jesus together, assuring that we preserve the gospel, the truth of the gospel, ensuring that we walk together, holding one another accountable to that profession, that confession, that right confession of who Jesus is. This is how we follow Jesus, this is how we help others follow Jesus by applying these things that Christ and the apostles have commanded and prescribed for every Christian to apply in the context of a local assembly, a local church. A healthy church is one where all the members are equipped to do the work of the ministry, participate in the work of discipling, have a sense of responsibility for the whole church, who work to preserve the gospel and engage in building up the church. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are hoping for. This is what we are praying for. This is what we are aiming for. When we rightly apply these things, we make stronger disciples. We have a more compelling and clear witness to unbelievers. We are better able to help plant new churches. We want the Lord to use us in these ways. May these things be true of us. May we rightly apply his word in regards to our life together as a local church. And in so doing, may Jesus be glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for Christ, who is the head of the church and our Savior. We thank you that Jesus willingly gave himself for our sake, that we might be washed and cleansed of all of our sin, reconciled to you, receiving the gift of eternal life. We pray that you'd help us to grow in our our knowledge and understanding of Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus in this world and what it means to be a, a local church. Help us to be faithful in these things, that we might help each other follow Jesus, that we might provide a compelling witness to the unbelieving world. We pray that you would use us to do the work of the Great Commission, Use us to lead others to faith in Christ. Use us to help start new churches in our region and around the world. We humbly ask this. In Jesus' name, amen.